This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I just found this so interesting as I was going through it before sitting down with you, uh, talking about this BC Consumer Debt Study that um, that Sands & Associates did. Is the, am, mm-hmm. am I right? That's right. Okay, so yeah. it's important that you know that you guys created, uh, talked to the people, got the data, and then put it all together. Yeah, it's our seventh year, Elaine. I'm so thrilled to be doing this. I can't believe seven years now we've been doing it where uh, we figured as the largest firm in BC who helps people with bankruptcies or proposals, we had this great opportunity to really take the pulse of people who are having trouble with debt in BC, um, ask them a number of questions, try to get their advice to help others in other situations, um, and just try to get more of a discussion happening about people suffering in debt and what are their options for moving forward. Um, so this year, it's the seventh time we've done it. Um, I was so pleased in that we had, I believe, North of 1,300 responses to our survey. And if we look at the number of people in a year who file for a bankruptcy or a proposal in all of BC, that's more than 10% of the total. So it's a pretty large number of folks. Um, So it gave us some really good insights about what people who are facing debt in BC, what their life is like right now. Yeah. And I think one of the other best um, sort of offshoots from, from anyone listening to this is that you'll get the sense right away that if you're in one of these situations, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of other people who are in the exact same spot who then took action to figure out how to do it and um, as a result, you know, got to share their information with you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really great. Yeah. And, and, you know, we change the focus every once in a while, you know, every year sometimes a bit of a different focus. So in the past, we've talked about payday loan usage in BC. We've talked about the need for financial literacy, uh, about student finances. You know, this year we focused a lot on, you know, what advice would you give to others? You know, how would you help someone in a tough situation? What would you tell them to do either differently or or to start doing? Um, so if you see the report, it's just, you know, just riddled with great quotes from people all around um, saying, you know, here's what I was facing. Here's what I did. Here's my encouragement for the future. So there's a lot of that upbeat um, type of wording in, in the report as well. Anything else you want to add in terms of the sort of the additional findings that you, that, that came out as a result of the survey? Yeah. You know, we also wanted to, to look into uh, what were the income sources of people who are having trouble with their debt. What's their housing situation? What's their credit rating? Um, And then also, what caused people to delay from seeking help? So, you know, our hypothesis is that people suffer alone and in silence for way too long. We want that to change. Um, This year, it told us, well, we still got a lot more work to do on that. Yeah, I think it'll be surprising as we start to go through some of the information, uh, exactly that, their their income levels, how they were living, credit, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. You'll go, oh, that's surprising. Oh, that's surprising. Because it was for me when I went through it, I thought, oh, that's so interesting. Men versus women. Mm -hmm. Those numbers are really interesting. Age group, also super interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get started. 
Yeah. So in, in terms of the demographics, so who we actually surveyed this year, so as I said, it was over 1,300 people who mm-hmm. had filed either a bankruptcy or, or a proposal. And then about 63% of that total were proposals. About 34% was a personal bankruptcy. Now so you got to feel good about that. Yeah, that, that's almost exactly what we see coming through our doors. It's pretty close to two thirds of people. They're not filing for bankruptcy anymore. They're filing for a consumer proposal. And that's a complete reversal from about 10 years ago, where it was about a third proposal, two thirds bankruptcy. So the word is getting out there a lot more that proposals are a great option to help people avoid a bankruptcy. Okay. Uh, and then from a gender point of view, this did surprise me. It was about 56% female uh, with the balance male. So I'd always thought it was pretty evenly split, but it seems at least in this past year, it's been more female driven than male driven in BC. Any idea why? Had you, were you able to sort of make any deductions from that? You know, in some cases, there's a higher incidence of student loans we've noticed uh-huh. with females. So, sure. um, you know, generally females over 30, much more likely to have student loans than males, at least in our practice. So, okay. um, you know, with student loans, you have to wait seven years until you were last a student and then you can come and get some debt help. So our hypothesis is it's just a lot more people now coming through with student loans, which tends to skew a little bit more females. So. And the other thing is you may want to look at university populations too, mm-hmm. uh, male versus female That's right. or people who identify as each if there's more uh, women or female mm-hmm. oriented than male oriented too that might come up mm-hmm. all right uh, what else uh, uh, how about are, mar- marital status can we talk about that part yeah yet? We, we looked at marital status so you know the vast ma- or not vast majority but the highest proportion of individuals just under 40 percent about 37 percent indicated they were married or in a common law relationship mm-hmm. uh, and that was closely followed by those who were single so about 34 okay. percent so you're both married common law single single, uh, pretty significant proportion of folks. Um, and then in terms of those who were divorced, that was about 23% uh, of the population, uh, widowed about 4%, uh, and the balance, you know, just other living arrangements. But sure. for, the ma- for the most part, you know, they're single or, or living in a committed relationship. So what about the actual age range of the participants? Did that surprise you at all? You know, a little bit. So the biggest thing that we noticed in this year, um, and definitely compared to previous surveys, was just the aging of debt. So finding that people are older when they come to see us. So in our 2012 study, we looked well, what's the percentage of people who are age 55 or older when they sit down with a trustee? At that point, it was about 26%, so just over one in four. Our 2016 study, it went from 26 to 36%, so now it's closer to one in three. In this study, it went to 39%. So, you know, just under 40% of individuals coming to see us age 55 or older. So a lot of those individuals, they don't have the ability to increase their income at the end of their working life. They get what the pension is and that's that. Sometimes they can't go out and get a second job. So it can be a really tough situation if you're dealing with debt at the end of your working life or well into retirement. And we're seeing that more and more. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about income and housing being highlighted in the study and what you what you found out of that? Yeah. Yeah, so this was really interesting to us. So, you know, a lot of times people say, well, a lot of this overextension, you know, bankruptcies and things, it must be caused by people just buying way too much house and not being able to afford the mortgage and, you know, getting turfed out and then having to go bankrupt after. I don't think I've ever seen that actually as a trustee in BC. I have almost nobody coming to see me because of mortgage overextension. And from our survey point of view, just 4.4% of respondents were homeowners at the time that they sought debt help. Hmm. So the vast majority of individuals, 79%, were renting, and then another 5% were sharing a rental unit. So, you know, that's about 85% of individuals are subject to the vagaries of the rental market within yes. the lower mainland, which can be incredibly difficult. Um, you know, if you've got a place that's at a good deal, you don't want to leave that because trying to get um, new living uh, spots right now, especially if you're a family, can be incredibly difficult to yeah. do so. 
so. So it's not a case that you know people are coming to see us because they're overextended on their mortgage. Um, it's quite the case that these are folks that unfortunately haven't been able to acquire any real estate, um, and now they're stuck with you know rents going up every year and their income just can't keep pace. Right. Exactly. Exactly that. That's what I would think that that would be. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now what we do think is that you know as of now it's four percent of respondents own a house. We I mean, that's going to go up in the future because I've seen this again and again. Um, individuals who own real estate, you know, they might get into debt problems, but then every three, four, five years, they refinance their mortgage and they just pay off all their debts at that point. Mm-hmm. So instead of paying down the mortgage, they end up owing more on the house, but at least it's not on credit cards anymore. Right. And then they've got the credit cards and those can go up again in the next few years. But what it means is when these individuals eventually sell the house, all the home equity lines of credit, all the mortgages need to get paid off. So they might be thinking they're going to have a bunch of equity at the end of the day, but if that's all been kind of sucked out over time just for consumption, it can be a really tough situation. So just having a home doesn't mean that you're going to be financially secure in Vancouver. Right. And with the fluctuating real estate market, as much as it has been, we've seen it, you know, huge highs Mm -hmm. and lows and then highs again and then changes in the tax structure or, um, you know, uh, penalties for people, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That changes people's how they're able to buy and what they're able to buy as Mm -hmm. well. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. You know, one other point there, Elaine, you asked me yes. about employment and you know, yes. this this was very surprising as well. I think for um, individuals, if you just think of bankruptcy at a headline level, you know, it's people completely down and out, down on their luck, you know, skid row type of thing. Mm-hmm. That's not what we found at all. No. So what we found um, is that more than 70% of the total survey respondents were working full-time, working part-time or being self-employed. So this isn't a question of hard work. You know, hard work alone is not enough to get you out of debt. It's a case of people working really hard, 70% full-time, part-time self-employment, but they still had to file either a bankruptcy or a proposal because the debt was just too high for even hard work to get them out of. Excellent. All right, next piece of it then. The primary income source at the time that people came to you for help. Right. So we talked about that with the reg- the employment income, um, self-employment income. You know, about 15% was actually retirement pension income. So that was their primary source of income. But for the most part, it was the self-employment, um, full-time, part-time work. Okay. Now, in terms of the amount of debt, so, you know, what caused people to finally reach out and say that they needed help, you know, that range was a little bit higher than it would have thought. So the most common um, range when people started to reach out for help was $25,000 to $50,000 worth of debt. And that's outside of your vehicle loan or your mortgage. So I would think for anybody listening, thinking about $25,000 of carrying credit card debt, that's pretty significant. But the vast majority of folks that we surveyed, the most common um, answer was, yeah, I waited until it got to about twenty five dollars to $50,000 before I reached out for help. Wow. And, and uh, I don't know anything about anything, but I would suggest that that's that's a little too long. Yeah, and that's that's the big challenge, and that's what a lot of the wisdom that came from other clients was saying. You know, I waited too long. You know, waited I, too long. I flailed about. I you know I just you know put my head in the sand. I didn't deal with the situation, and the debts just accumulated. Um, you know, we found about eleven point seven percent of people their debts were a hundred thousand dollars or more by the time wow. they came to see us. And again, it's not mortgages, not car loans. So imagine your credit cards, your lines of credit your student loans, you know, topping $100,000, um, you know, even those from fifty to 100000 that was another 25% of individuals. So It's really high. Yeah. So it's it's definitely, I think people let their debts accumulate to a level where there's just really nothing else they can do than come see a trustee. Whereas if they had acted a little bit more quickly, they wouldn't have been so stressed and perhaps, you know, they would have done a proposal instead of a bankruptcy in some of those situations. Now, is that the big, is that the big takeaway for you after looking at those numbers that people needed to 
take action sooner? Mm -hmm. And what about having money put aside? And I know that that's really hard for some people to even think about sort of that emergency fund, but Mm -hmm. I I would think that that would have been helpful as well. You're absolutely right, Elaine, on that emergency fund, because as we dug into the causes of debt, you know, what really caused people to have to file either bankruptcy or proposal, you know, it was kind of the classic causes that you think about. Um, You know, it's job related, there's unemployment, a layoff, a reduction in pay, there's an illness, injury, or health problem, there's a marital breakdown, or so on and so forth. You know, the combination of those was over 40% of the survey respondents. And to your point, Elaine, if you had an emergency fund, a lot of those things, that's why you have an emergency fund. You have an emergency fund that if you're sick, you're going to be able to pay your fixed account fixed expenses. If you're getting divorced, you've got something to get you through. So the challenge, I think, is that we've got people operating with no safety net whatsoever. No savings, no emergency fund. You know, the emergency fund is the credit card at the end of the month, which is not an emergency fund. You need to have money saved that you can put aside to help you get through the tough situations that you don't have to necessarily reach out to a trustee right then. So is there some sort of, as we close out this segment, is there something that you can do easily or very definitively to create an emergency fund for yourself? Because I know that that's real pie in the sky for some Mm -hmm. people. They can't even wrap their head around that idea of having money put aside. Yeah, there's nothing easy about saving money, um, you know, other than you've just got to do it daily. So, you know, if you were to reverse engineer, you need three to six months of expenses. You want to have that in two years time. What does that work out to literally on a daily basis? And then just start to save that money, put it aside into a separate account. The other thing I want to add is that you can see the whole uh, consumer debt study on the website sands-trustee.com Now you walked in here with a new study mm-hmm. which is always interesting to me I always enjoy seeing what the stuff that you care about and that you pay attention to yeah. and it was a uh, when did it come out came out in the middle of March That's right yeah I got a bunch of Google alerts so every day I'm looking at different things but anything to do with debt it obviously piques my interest quite sure. a bit and it says almost two-thirds of the people asked and talked to in this poll anticipate new forms of debt in 2019. New forms of debt. So mm-hmm. is that new forms of debt to them or is are these new categories altogether? No, new forms of debt to them. Okay. So this is saying if they didn't have a payday loan, well, 3% of people think that they're going to have that next year. Um, okay. You know, if they didn't have a personal loan, well, 8% of people think they're going to have that next year. So um, it's, yeah, majority, two-thirds of people think that their debt situation is probably either going to get worse or at least change a little bit with just different forms of debt. And and it was um, a specific age group, so, or, or at least it was divided up into age groups, right? So those under mm-hmm. 55 are significantly more likely to anticipate new forms of debt. Uh, 23% anticipate new uh, credit card balance. So was it done by ages or was it just done in a group? No, I think they did segment the, the material. Segmented yeah, debt. the findings by by age there. And it was done by Leger Research. So a okay. very reputable uh, research agency yeah. with you know a few thousand people in their panel, people that they survey. And one of the things I took away from this too, and it's something that I'm seeing more and more, is just this normalization of debt. Like mm. people thinking it's the new normal, everybody's got debt and it's okay. I think that's a really good point. And mm-hmm. we see it and, and we can't help but feel that sometimes, I think, in the yeah. lower mainland. Oh, exactly. Because the, the cost of living and yeah. the cost of, of owning a home or having a home of any kind, right? Yeah. And then you've got these innovative new types of credit. And innovative is usually not a good thing when it comes to credit because it means higher cost, higher fees. So what's interesting to me too is the idea debts become so normal that we're 
less fearful about it than perhaps we should be. So when I see people are talking about they might have a payday loan next year or more debt next year, when they're actually looking at those payday loan documents, they should be, you know, really shocked at the interest rates and the fees and things like that. But we're so accustomed to debt that a lot of people are barely reading the contracts, like your iTunes agreement there. You just kind of scroll through it. And because we're just used to it, we just assume it's all fine. Now, can we differentiate there with age group? Like, is there, are older people more likely uh, to fall in, have fallen into that attitude? Or are we looking no, at the younger opposite. people? It's younger people for yeah. sure. So if I see older folks who have, say, payday loans to pick on them, for example, older folks are typically, their eyes are downcast. Like, yeah, I know I shouldn't have done this, but hey, I got into a few payday loans. Uh, I see folks, you know, more millennial type of age. Uh, they might have six or eight of them and Money Mart's been marketing to them for 20 years. They don't think this is a bad thing. You know, wow. a payday loan is not necessarily their last resort, it's just something, hey, we use to make ends meet when we need it. So um, again, things that should be very infrequent, uh, it seems like a, a younger generation is thinking that debt is, you know, again, it's more just a fact of life where it shouldn't be. Debt-free should be the, the default aspect of life. So if I've got somebody in my head that I know that's a young person that I'm fearful for that have fallen into that category, can I send them to your website? Yeah, of course. Is there, is there information there that would actually speak to a younger person versus just a, an average person? Yeah, in some of the most recent debt studies that we've done, so we talked on the show every year, we do a really in-depth debt study. Uh, we actually segment a lot of the materials out, focusing on a youth generation under 30, kind of a midlife generation of you know uh, 30 to 54, and then the retiree or pre-retirement generation. Okay, we've also got some really specific uh, research. It's done about three years ago where we went to campus and asked people about their financial expectations expectations, how much did they think they would earn after graduation, um, and compared that to the actual reality, which people are woefully optimistic (laughs) about what they think they'll earn versus the reality, which again leads to why a lot of folks have trouble once they graduate and paying down their debts. Okay. All right. So let's go back to this study. Um, Now, what's the other thing? Because you had sort of a, you have an issue with it. Well, I've got a big issue with this. (laughs) So the first one I thought, okay, that's a little bit of, you know, a downer people anticipating new forms of debt, new and wonderful innovations to keep us in debt. But the second finding in here just really shocked me because I felt, and as I looked a little bit more into depth in this, I thought this is sending the wrong message to people and again, normalizing a behavior that shouldn't be normalized, which is cashing in assets to pay debt. So the headline here is two in 10 with debt say they will need to liquidate assets to help pay off or pay down their debt this year. And you know, 19% agreed uh, or somewhat agreed to it, uh, 20% somewhat disagreed, so on and so forth. But you know, two in 10, that's relatively significant to me. Um, and that included everything from RRSPs to vehicles, um, you know, to personal assets that probably could have been exempt, um, that they wouldn't necessarily have to give up if they did find themselves in debt. Okay. So, and why is it such a bad idea? So most people, when they, talk, when they talk about RRSPs, for example, they don't think about the impact when they cash them in. So um, actually just this morning, I was on Global News and we were talking about the potential impact when you cash in RRSPs from a tax perspective, and it's a double whammy. Mm-hmm. You got the tax refund when you put the money in, which is great, but it's the complete opposite when you take the money out. So you cashing in assets to pay debt, you get hit with a tax bill. It's usually not enough to pay off the debt in full, and then you've just compromised your retirement. So my worry here is that people are hearing, you know, two and 10 Canadians think they're going to have to cash in assets to pay debt, and that could include RRSPs. So why don't I cash in my RRSP? I'm just going to be like two in 10 Canadians. And that's the worst possible financial decision anybody could ever make. I can't be more clear about that, I think, uh, is cashing in your RRSPs to pay debt. It's a double whammy. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. 
Uh, was there anything else you wanted to add on the RRSP? No, the RRSPs, I think we, we've hit pretty hard. But the other thing is just this idea of kind of a one-time solution to your debt mm. problem is, you know, you've only got one set of assets to cash in. And sometimes it's the easier, and not that it's easy, but the easier option is just to liquidate some assets, pay off the debt, because it doesn't force you to solve the underlying problem, which might be a budgetary imbalance or something else going on every month that's leading to you being in debt. So oftentimes people cash in assets, they feel great for a while, um, and then the debt problem reemerges because you haven't solved the underlying cause. Right. So could you help me solve the underlying cause? If I'm in this situation, if I'm thinking I'm going to start liquidating stuff... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you come in for a consultation. One of the first things we look at is the budget. And we have to figure out, you know, especially in Vancouver, if 50% of your after-tax income is going to your rent, you're going to have to make some hard decisions about your other expenditures. So there's just so only so much to go around. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the other piece of this, I know that this really irks you, mm-hmm. is who's behind the study. Yeah, so there's an element of a conspiracy theorist to me, I guess. But um, this study was in partnership. Uh, it was Leger Marketing, and it was with Credit Canada, uh, which sounds very innocuous. Credit Canada. Yeah, sounds is, very good. Yeah, it's a not-for-profit, not a charity. They were stripped of their charitable status recently, but they're a not-for-profit <laughs> credit counseling agency. Um, and then I also printed off, and wonderful on radio, you can't see it, but it's a credit counseling agency that is registered as a collection agency uh, about 10 times over in the province of Ontario, so each of their various uh, offices there. So we've got a collection agency that's partnered with a market research firm to get some legitimacy who is giving consumers the idea that everyone's going to be more in debt and to solve it, you should be liquidating your assets. Got it. So that's my feeling is that if this was saying, hey, collection agency sponsored this study, we would know to discount it right away. But when we hear it's sponsored by Credit Canada, that almost sounds like a government organization. You know, why wouldn't we trust what they would have to say? Yeah, the average person is going to go think, oh, all right, oh, I need to pay attention to this. These Mm -hmm. are smart people. They're after my best interests, when in fact... You have to question that. It could be the opposite. Could Indeed. be the opposite. All right. Uh, did you want to mention at least one example? Yeah, I really like that when we talk every month about some clients we've been able to help. Yes. Um, so one person I was really proud of this month, so he's about 35 years old, and he was a skilled tradesman, but he'd had some health issues. He had about $55,000 in consumer debt, getting a ton of collection calls. I could just see the stress on his face when we sat down the first time. Yeah. And his minimum payments, he was earning $3,200 a month, 1600 was required for his minimum payments and the debts weren't going down. He's wow. just clearing the interest each month and that's that. Uh, we filed a consumer proposal. We reduced his debt from 55000 to less than half to about 23400 in total. Um, and he's paying the proposal off over a three-year term at six fifty per month. So from 1600 on the never-never plan to six fifty on the three-year get-out-of-debt plan. Nice. Oh, I'm so glad that, you, that we had time to mention that. If any of this information is resonating with you, go to the website, Sam Sands-Trustee.com is just chock-a-block full of great questions and great answers. As well, give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that consultation. As well, find an office near you. This is one of my most favorite topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was brand new to me when we first started working together, and I, I can't tell you how many people I've told about, not that they're necessarily in need of something, but mm-hmm. hey, did you know that this exists? And people go, no, really? Or, yeah, oh, I've heard about that. And it's called the consumer proposal. 
Yeah, and Elaine, I get calls from accountants, from lawyers, from sophisticated finance professionals, and they don't know either. Oh, good. Thank and, you for yeah. including me in that group. Well, there you go. <laughs> and I remember even myself, you know, I graduated from business school. I was working at an accounting firm in Toronto, one of the big four. I had no idea about consumer proposals until I saw in one of the you know monthly accounting newsletters a case study. And I saw, wow, this person had $20,000 in debt. They reduced it down to six. They didn't have to go bankrupt. And I thought, wow, I need to know more about that. But it's something that people don't understand enough about. And that's why we do the show is to get all this great information out to our listeners. Is it a, is it a new, is it how, how old a concept is or process is the consumer proposal? You know, I want to say it was early 2000s when it was okay. first put into, into legislation. But it was about 2009 is when the government changed the laws and made bankruptcy longer and more difficult than it was previously to encourage people to use consumer proposals. So I've been doing this work about the last 13 years. When I first started, it was rare that we saw people that wanted to do proposals. Now it's almost 70% of folks end up filing proposals. And some people come in and are completely surprised this even exists. Other people have done the research. They know the proposal they want to file. They know which creditors are difficult and which ones aren't. So uh, some people are getting more and more informed. Cool. Well, mm-hmm. the, and this segment is all about the consumer proposal, the ins and outs of it, how it works. Um, so let's get started. Mm-hmm. Uh, when so when it's if debt has started to become overwhelming, one of the first options people think about is debt consolidation. Yeah, that's that's pretty typical, right? Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because when you consolidate debt, you've just got one payment to worry about, you know, typically a lower interest rate. It's a lot more simple. And ideally, there's some savings there. And the consumer proposal is really based on that principle of debt consolidation. But there's so much more to it. Yeah. So debt consolidation, but with two really big differences. So where they're similar is that all the debts are put together and there's one payment that you make. But one of the big differences is in a consumer proposal, you're not paying back typically 100 cents on the dollar unless that's what you can afford to pay back. Most people can afford to pay back 20 cents on the dollar, 30 cents, 40 cents, something like that, but some significant discount to the amounts that are owing. So, so that's a big difference. Yeah, big difference. So 20 to 40%, is that sort of your average of where people fall into? Yeah, that's a very good starting point. If I'm sitting down with someone knowing nothing about the situation, I'm usually starting with, okay, 30 cents on the dollar might be a ballpark of a proposal. Now, if the person has a whole lot of assets, a whole lot of money in the bank, things like that, we might not be able to offer that little. But conversely, if someone is really in a tough situation, we might be able to offer 20 cents on the dollar. So it, do, it does vary situation to situation, but for the most part, it's significant discount on the debt. So one big difference is you don't pay back the debt in full. The other big difference is in a consolidation loan, you're typically still paying interest and probably 10, 12% for the most part, which is much better than 19 to 30%, but it's still you're paying interest. In a consumer proposal, zero interest. So big difference. Big difference there. Zero interest and no professional fees on top of what you pay. Whatever your payment is, that's what you can afford. Everybody gets paid out of that, your debts and the trustee. So there's one payment that you're making Mm -hmm. per month, and that's covering everybody. And that's an important um, thing to remember as we go through this. Uh, Also, the consumer proposal isn't a loan. And I think that's that's a really good, I hadn't seen that before, but I think that's a really good thing to mention. Mm -hmm. It's not a loan. Yeah, and I have people coming in where that's their conception of it. It's okay, trustee, I guess you've got some fund behind you and you're (laughs) going to pay off these debts and then I'm going to pay you back. And say, no, that's not how it works at all. So um, I've only got what you're going to pay into your trust account for the proposal. So when I do a proposal, let's say it's $20,000 of debt being reduced down to $6,000, I'm not handing them $6,000. I'm handing them your promise to give them $6,000 over the next five years. And in exchange for that promise, you get protection. You get that they can't opt out of this as long as you make all the payments on time. 
you're protected for the full time in that proposal. And at the end of you paying off the $6,000, the full $20,000 debt gets discharged. So it's basically a promise and you make good on that promise over time. But there's no loaning of money. There's no pot of money the trustee has. It's everything is just an arrangement. And you help me work out exactly what makes the best sense for me to pay per month Mm -hmm. to satisfy my debtors. uh, And really, you know, peace of mind, my Mm -hmm. peace of mind, I think would go with that. Yeah, a person's you, peace of mind. Exactly. So we're driven by a couple things. We're driven by, you know, what's the household budget? What can the person reasonably afford? And we have to make sure a proposal doesn't create undue hardship or else by law, I'm not allowed to file it. I have to sign off on every proposal. I believe it's in people's best interest. So we have to make sure it can be affordable. Um, and then we also have to make sure that it's a reasonable recovery on the debt. So as long as it's something that's better than a situation of a bankruptcy, if a bankruptcy is going to give the creditors back zero cents in the dollar, then a proposal offering 20 to 30 cents it should be very attractive to creditors. All right. And now there's so many questions I've got on this that I think are really important to make sure that we talk about. Um, But the first thing that you've mentioned here in the notes for this segment is that a consumer proposal automatically stops further interest from accruing on your debt. Mm -hmm. Really important to know. Yeah. And that's just by law. So the day you file a consumer proposal, I like to tell people, okay, the target stopped moving away from you today. Because right now the target's moving away from you at 20% per month. Right, And if you think of what you're paying on interest, your minimum payments, you're just not getting anywhere. As soon as you file a proposal, the interest goes to zero by law. And your debts are frozen at whatever that amount is. At that moment you filed the proposal, they can't charge you another dollar of interest. Excellent. So do you want to talk about the key factors that you guys, that a, that a licensed insolvency trustee such as yourself uh, would look at when I sit down with you? Yeah. So, so two main things. So we have to figure out what's the total amount of the debt and what percentage can we offer. So, you know, sometimes if I have people come in and maybe through no fault of their own, but the debts are massive, you know, there could have been an ICBC accident where they were uninsured. Uh, maybe that is fault of their own. But anyway, sometimes debts can be just so extreme that trying to offer back, you know, 20 to 40 percent of of two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars of debt, it's just not going to be possible. So it's got to be a situation where the total amount of debt is still reasonable. Um, by law, a consumer proposal can be used for debts up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Okay, think that's excluding a mortgage. So you could still have a big mortgage, but as long as your consumer debts are under two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you could be eligible to file a consumer proposal. But I'd say for the most part, proposals are in the range of probably forty to eighty thousand uh, dollars of total debt that we then reduce down to about a third of that amount. And if my amount, if my debt amount is over two hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, then we would talk about uh, the other option, which would be to file for bankruptcy. Yeah, so bankruptcy would be another option. There is still, there's kind of an archaic style, an older style of a proposal that could still apply if debts are over $250,000, but it's in very specific situations. So you'd want to sit down with your trustee and understand that one. Perfect. Mm -hmm. All right. So looking at the total amount of your debt Mm -hmm. and your monthly household income. Yeah. So as we talked about, whatever we do, it's got to fit into the budget. And, you know, sometimes even if there's a third party that wants to help out, that can be fine. That can help to fit the budgetary gap. So I often say, and sometimes families come in as, as a whole and there might be someone in the family who's got some resources, you know, they could choose to pay the person's debt off in full or what's better in my opinion is let's do a consumer proposal and then if you want to help the person pay off that consumer proposal, the family is much better off because the debt's been reduced down to a reasonable amount and then the person has come through a proceeding with the trustee where they've gotten some counseling, they've figured out this is serious, they've dealt with their issues, um, they're going to be much better off rather than the family member just paying it and saying, hey, don't do this again. 
Right. Um, and I think the counseling part is really important. Uh, having had a number of the different of different people from, from Sands and Associates come on the show and talk about that's what their job is, is they're part of that counseling process, uh, just to really help you figure out uh, where you went wrong, mm-hmm. the choices you made maybe weren't the best ones based on your situation, and how to how to move forward nicely. Yeah, exactly. What's, what's the future going to hold? And hopefully, you know, you'll send us a nice card in the future, but you won't be back in our office. Offices, ideally. Nice. Mm-hmm. So once you know what you, you're set to offer your creditors, what happens next? Yeah. So once you filed the proposals, you sit down with the trustee and normally you'll meet with the trustee about three times before you're signing the document. So you okay. got the first initial consultation where it's very informal, talk about the options. Second meeting is normally where you bring back a bunch more information. So you know your pay stubs, your tax return, your debt statements and things like that. And the third meeting is when we've structured the proposal and then you sit down and you sign the proposal and that's when you're protected. As soon as we file the proposal, we send it out to all of your creditors and they have to vote back to us within 45 days of the day of the filing. So you get a copy of the documents as well at the same time. And then it's just a bit of a waiting game at that point. There's nothing you can do. And essentially your trustee has sent the proposal to the creditors. We're just waiting for them to answer back. For a proposal to get approved, what's great about this tool too is if you've got one creditor that no way, no how is ever going to negotiate a reduction, they want to sue you, they want to take you to court and see you hang, so to speak, all these things, as long as they're not 50% of your debt, they can be forced to go along in a consumer proposal because all we need is 50% by dollar value to say yes. Okay. So that creditor might even be the government. It might be the government taking your wages, but if they're not a majority of your debt, if your other creditors want a consumer proposal to succeed, that's enough to make it legally binding on all of your debts. The other thing let's include is who the creditors can be, who mm-hmm. going to a licensed insolvency trustee uh, gives me that protection with my, my debtors. It can be banks, credit yeah. card companies, the government in all cases. Yeah. Well, it, it's any debt anywhere in the world. So okay. even if it's a foreign debt and they're trying to collect in Canada, a proposal will protect you from that. Uh, very few exceptions, you know, things like child support, spousal support. If there was a court order of awards against you, you know, for, for bodily harm, there's a few things that you can't deal with, but they're a very small list and they're the common sense things. Okay. Uh, the one that's not common sense is student loans and you have to be out of school at least five to seven years uh, for us to really do much with student loans. But if you're facing student loans, we've got a bunch of other segments. We've talked about that. I'm sure it'll come up again in the future. Excellent. All right. So then the creditors accept the proposal. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Oh, <laughs> what happy thing happens next? Yeah, the person breathes a big sigh of relief yeah. and they say, oh my God, the proposal that I offered actually got accepted because you know I help people sign proposals all the time and everyone is still, they're still antsy at that point. They're still, you know, what's the success rate? Is this still real? Is it really going to happen? And, you know, I can tell people my experience in the last year, I had one proposal fail. One. And oh, that's I do, pretty good. I do a ton every month and I'm dealing with a lot of different client situations. And the situation that failed, it was someone who hadn't filed taxes for 10 years. It was only tax debt and CRA just was not willing to give that person the opportunity to do a proposal. I understood it a bit. We advocated as best as we could, but we couldn't reach a deal. In other cases, 95% of the time, they accept our first offer in a proposal. And it's quite simple. Just more is better than less. I show them a bankruptcy at zero or a proposal at 30 cents on the dollar. Most of the time they'll say yes. Uh, so 95 
95% on the first offer, 99% of the time, if we have to negotiate, we still reach a successful outcome. Okay. And the, uh, my reporter side of me says, what mm-hmm. happened to the first one where the, where CRA wouldn't negotiate? How did that end? Uh, the person ended up filing for bankruptcy. Okay. And that was CRA's idea was if they go through bankruptcy, then they're going to have to disclose everything. They, CRA can ask extra questions and things like that. So okay. they wanted the person to go through to understand why for 10 years they hadn't filed a tax return. Good. But you wa- you walked with them through that oh, process yeah. well, as well. We're still working through it. And, right. Okay. And yeah, you know, we have a lot of folks that are in that situation and sometimes proposals can be accepted for tax debt, sometimes not, but bankruptcy will typically give you that fresh start. Excellent. So if any of this is resonating with you, make that appointment. 1-800-661-3030. Uh, talk to somebody at Sands & Associates. Check out their website if you if you want to do that first and then call sands-trustee.com. So we talk a lot about uh, consumer proposals and bankruptcy. And bankruptcy is always a bit of a scarier word because mm-hmm. it's been around for a long time and it means all kinds of things or it has a lot of uh, emotions attached Absolutely, to it. Yeah. So so this segment's called Five Things You Didn't Know About Bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing what this segment's all about. Yeah. What are they? Well, it, it's funny because a lot of people, when they come into my office, they've already self-diagnosed and they said, you know, don't even talk to me about bankruptcy. I know what that's all about. Someone comes to my ah. house, they, they tear everything out, they, you know, they tell all my neighbors, they put me in the newspaper. I don't want any sort of that. I lose my house, my clothes, my car. Exactly. I have to move. Yeah. yeah. Or if I go bankrupt, I'll never get credit again. And, you yeah. know, usually my response to that is with a little bit of a half smile. I'm like, okay, are you asking me or telling me? Yeah. Because I'm going to tell you a bunch of things that are at odds here. And, you know, essentially you're going to have to decide who you believe. Yeah. Uh, but there's so much misinformation that's out there. So I thought today, let's talk about five things you might not know about bankruptcy. Some of them aren't myths or just, you know, little arcane points, but I think it'll help our listeners really understand. And the remedy of bankruptcy is typically not what you think. There's a whole lot more positivity. Um, you know, I've heard someone say about a trustee, you know, similar to an anesthesiologist, you could look at an anesthesiologist as the person that puts you to sleep or the person that wakes you back up and puts you back to life. Hmm. I think a trustee is similar to that. <laughs> We're not the person that puts you, you know, um, you know, in the coffin, so to speak. We're the right. person that helps you rebuild, that helps you to start again with no debt and have a greater tomorrow. Well, that's very good. I'm impressed. Oh, well then. <laughs> so the first one, a $1,000 minimum. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, to go bankrupt, you only have to owe $1,000. So oh. that usually surprises people because they think there's a much higher bar to access the insolvency system, but For it sure. really is just $1,000. Okay. And it's kind of an archaic thing. It came back from, you know, most bankruptcy legislation in Canada it was written around the Great Depression. At that point, you can imagine $1,000 was a was very it? significant debt. Huge amount of money. And we have nobody these days that files bankruptcy for $1,000, but I do have individuals that'll do consumer proposals, you know, $5,000 or $8,000 or $10,000, something like that. So if somebody thinks they've got to be so far gone, they've got to owe fifty dollars or $100,000 or something like that before a trustee will even talk to them, the answer is no. Under the law, you could have access to the insolvency system if you owed more than $1,000 and were not able to pay it. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing the show for a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in, in some cases, it's so interesting because it's the individual's perspective. You know, some people could have $75,000 of debt and be actually able to manage it okay. They've got, you know, they're psychologically fine. They've got good cash flow. Conversely, somebody could have $5,000 of debt and it might be consuming their life and they all they're doing is paying minimums. They know they're never getting out of debt. Both of those people could need help. That's very interesting. So there's no income cap. 
mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. So when people come in and they say, well, I've heard in bankruptcy, you can only make a certain amount of money or how much can okay. I actually make? And well, the answer is it's unlimited. The whole point of a bankruptcy is to give you the ability to earn income so that you're able to make some repayment on your debts or at the very least pay the cost of the administration to go through. So whether you're earning $500 a month or $5,000 a month, bankruptcy is definitely an option for somebody. Um, the way a bankruptcy payment is calculated is it's based on ability to pay. So we've talked a lot that if someone is in bankruptcy, they either fall into a category of being low income. And for a single person, that's about the $2,000 a month of income. So if mm-hmm. they're earning below that, they're considered low income, or they're considered not low income if they earn above that. And if somebody is low income, they pay a minimum amount in a bankruptcy over a nine-month period. And if they're not low income, they pay an amount based on their income over a year plus nine months. Okay. So there's a scenario for bankruptcy that would fit basically any income characteristic. Now, it's very rare for somebody earning you know, $5,000, $7,000 a month to file a bankruptcy because very often they're able to do a consumer proposal. And any of our listeners will know a consumer proposal is an alternative to bankruptcy. You restructure the debt, you pay off usually a third to a half, no interest charges, and everyone's happy by the end of it. Um, but strictly speaking, if someone had you know very significant amounts of debt, sometimes over a million dollars of debt, no matter what their income is, trying to offer a half or a third of such a big number wouldn't be possible. Um, that person could still be eligible for bankruptcy regardless of their monthly income levels. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. What about your credit? I mm-hmm. mean, that is that's got to be a fear of people. I mean, it makes sense to me that you wouldn't. Then who who's ever going to take um, you know a bit of a risk on you again? Right. And I understand that from a headline level, and that's when people come in, they say, I know if I go bankrupt, I'll never get credit again. And I say, well, let's unpack that a little bit. So how many people in Canada last year do you think went bankrupt or did a consumer proposal? And most people had no idea. And I say, well, it's between 100 and 120,000 people every year. Can you imagine if the whole financial sector wrote off 100 to 120,000 individuals every year? and said, Forever. Forever, said we're never going to do business with them again. We're never going to make a dollar of interest. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Right. It's over a period of 20 years, what's that, 2 million people? Yeah. What's that, a pretty big proportion of the adult population in Canada? Yeah. So it's a complete myth that the financial institute institutions will not do business with you again. What's going to happen is obviously they're going to be a bit gun-shy at first. So if you've been into bankruptcy, you had $25,000 of debt and a bunch of credit cards, the day that you're discharged from that bankruptcy, don't expect that you're going to get approved from the same credit that you had before. Sure. You've obviously just came through a proceeding where you've scrubbed off the debt, but the impact of that is going to last for a few years after. So for someone who's never been bankrupt before, the bankruptcy is going to purge from their credit. So it'll be like it never happened six years after it's finished. So it doesn't mean they're untouchable for six years, but definitely after those six years, if someone pulls a credit report, they won't even see that a bankruptcy has been filed. But realistically, if someone's got reasonable income, they're paying all their bills on time, the cell phone bills, the hydro, everything counts every month. It's usually a two to three year period where the person is reestablishing credit. And after that, they could get a mortgage. See, that's significant, two to three years, right? A lot less than what you would think. And I work through the scenario with individuals and say, okay, let's keep doing what you're doing and let's see how quickly you'll get this debt paid off and how quickly you can save a down payment and how quickly you'll be able to get that mortgage that you want. And then let's do another scenario. If, if we go through a bankruptcy or a proposal, we write off all the debt, you start saving money while you're rebuilding your credit. In every scenario I've ever looked at, that person is so much better off to get rid of the debt, to take the hit on their credit, but start saving the money and rebuild their credit. It's a much better plan. Excellent. What about assets if you go into bankruptcy? 
Yeah, a lot of people think when you go into bankruptcy, you lose everything. Um, almost everybody keeps all of their assets while they go through bankruptcy. See, and that's so important to yeah. know because it's it's movies, it's television shows, it's books, it's yeah. all of that that you know the person's just wiped out and that's it. They're yep. they're you know they're they're walking through town with a little knapsack on their back with nothing in it. Exactly, and that's you know the headline understanding of bankruptcy is you lose everything, but there's provincial legislation that says okay, if the bankruptcy act says you got to give everything to the trustee. The province of BC says, well, hold on, you get to keep a vehicle. You get to keep your tools of the trade. You get to keep your RRSPs, mm-hmm. which most people don't know. You get to keep all of your clothing, anything you need for medical purposes. You get to keep all your household furniture, everything yes. that's in your apartment or your house. I'm not showing up to inventory or to take it out. You get to keep all of that stuff. So, you know, yeah, if you've got the speedboat or the yacht and you got a bunch of debts, sorry, that might have to get sold. But the vast majority of people, when they come to see a trustee, they've sold anything that could reasonably be used to pay their debts. Um, and the other assets that they have, they're typically able to retain either through a bankruptcy or a proposal proceeding. Yeah, they don't want you out on the street. No, no. There's certain base level of, of, you know, even dignity as a Canadian, as an individual. You know, if you think about someone coming and inventorying your assets, making it a public record, um, you know, it's it's not an experience people would want to go through. Okay. So what's the last one? It's called Yes, It Covers. Yeah. So a lot of the times I'll be sitting down with somebody, we'll go through everything about their debts, and then they'll say, oh, I've also got this debt, but I know you guys can't help with that. I'm like, okay, tell me more. What, what do we have here? Um, so some people assume that bankruptcy doesn't cover debts with Canada Revenue Agency. It absolutely does. Tax debt has no special status um, in bankruptcy legislation. If you do a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, your tax debt can be dealt with. Um, student loans is another one, uh, where as long as it's been more than five to seven years since you've been a student, so you can't graduate and the next day decide to get rid of the student loan, you have to make a good faith effort to work and earn income. But after it's been the five to seven years, you can deal with a student loan as well. Um, MSP debt. So again, it's a government debt. We can deal with that. And even debt where you might feel incredibly guilty that you incurred it, like maybe there's a gambling addiction or some speculation, that type of debt can still be dealt with in a bankruptcy as long as you've shown you've taken the steps to deal with the underlying issue. And see, that's why it's so important to go see someone like Blair, a licensed insolvency trustee, because they'll actually work with you and help you figure that out and sort of allay all those fears, uh, crazy fears, yeah, when it comes right down to it, right? There's almost no Nobody I've met where their understanding is any worse than, than what it actually is. So in many cases, their understanding is so far worse and I'm able to bring them back to something that's really reasonable and it's a good option for them. Excellent. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.